If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, you want to pass those to the center aisle. Ron or Chandler will pick them up and we'll pray for you. My Bible's open to Romans chapter 6. And here we are on the Lord's Day, uh, gathered, opening this letter that has been used by God in powerful ways through the centuries. And we come to some new ground this morning in chapter 6. Jesus Christ taught that if anyone would follow him, it would require a denial and a death to self. To be saved is a call to live for, for his purposes and for his glory. In Christ, we discover that our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price, the price of his blood. The apostle Peter captures this beautifully in 1 Peter 2.24, where he says that Jesus, he himself, bore our sins on the tree. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so as we come into Romans chapter 6, that's what it's really addressing. Our sanctification in Jesus Christ, which is painfully slow at times. Up to this point, he's been talking about being justified by faith. And now in chapter 6, he, he will be addressing um, what does it mean to be conformed into the image of Jesus? What does it mean to be yielded to him? What does it mean for change to come to my life? Paul has uh, drilled deep doctrinal pillars into the ground for understanding the work of salvation. We understand from the book of Romans that you and I, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was reminded of that this morning when I was thinking about our pastoral prayer time and just reviewing the Ten Commandments and how we fall short of God's glory. If not in actual deed, then in our thoughts and in our minds. We've had other gods before him. We've embraced idols in our life. We need, we need a savior. And he is, Paul has also pointed out that that savior came in the person of Jesus who in his wrath absorbing death on the cross satisfied the penalty for sin. And in chapter five, which is where we've been in recent studies, he states in clear terms that if you and I want to be justified, if you and I want to be forgiven, if you and I want to be received by God, it will be by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So Romans 5 presents our union with Christ. When we turn from our sins and believe on him, we are described in biblical terms as being in Christ. That's Paul's favorite designation for the believer. We are in Christ, which means that Christ is in us. We are becoming like Christ and we are with Christ. He's with us always, even into the end of the age. Simply stated, our union with Jesus Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. The spirit of the living God dwells within you as a believer. Well, that presents a problem for us because we, that's a glorious thought. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, that my Savior dwells within me through the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And we think of that wonderful position in God, and then we think, man, I look back at my week and it's a wreck. I look back at my, in my Christian life, it seems so slow. How does change really come? 
I think that's the theme of chapter six, that, that, that Christ in us is forming us into his image. And this is not a mechanical bond. It's not merely a legal declaration, as wonderful as that is, especially if you're in court and you're guilty. And in the court of heaven, God says you are reconciled. You are justified because of the righteousness of my son. But it's more than a a legal declaration, as wonderful as that is. We see in the book of Romans that, that we're adopted into his family and we are his sons and daughters. Jesus described this union with him using the picture of the vine and the branches. Remember in John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You are the branches. Abide in me, he said. Uh, because apart from me, you can do nothing. You cut a branch off and you set it aside, what does it do? It dies, it withers. We need to abide in Christ and to feed on his grace. And so Paul, in chapter six, takes us back to the beginning of our salvation. This all triggers in his mind the, the whole subject of baptism. And let me just say on the front end, I'm appealing today on the authority of this text. If you have not been baptized, that you would be baptized in short order. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've not been baptized, what I'm wanting you to see this morning is, well, that's a problem. Because my Savior's commanded it, and it's out of this flow of God's grace in my life and this faith relationship that I would act on that in obedience right away. I'm not going to say any more about it than that. I'm just going to let it hang. I'm not going to say, well, you're not saved by baptism. It's an ordinance. That'll come in a minute. (laughs) I'm wanting to hold out that Jesus said to the disciples, as you go into all the nations and you make disciples of them, baptize them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So more about that in just a moment. Um, But we come to chapter 6, and Tom Schreiner, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, provides an overview here. I just want to, as we come into chapter 6, Schreiner writes, Believers should not continue in sin in order to maximize grace. So grace, rightly understood and experienced, doesn't lead us to live a, a, a life of license, but rather the fear of God is put in our heart. Believers cannot live under the power of sin because they have died to its power. That's the reality. How do we know believers died to the power of sin? They died to its power when they were baptized, incorporated into Christ. And this baptism into Christ involved union in his death, burial, and resurrection. So I want to break down my thoughts in this way. First, isn't grace risky? You know, isn't it, isn't it risky? He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's dealt with that argument from the Jews in particular from the beginning of his ministry. What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, I'm under grace. I can live however I want. And you see the problem. Does God's grace really lead me to loose living? Even a more radical attitude, the more we sin, the, the more grace might be showcased for all to see. 
And I've talked to people through the years, particularly when I was younger in my Christian life on camp, college campus, actually, you know, where there's this flippant, uh, I'm under grace, I'm not really worried about, you know, my morality. I'm under grace. Don't get so worked up about it. Don't, you're, you're too bothered about that. We're under grace, that's all that matters. Well, that's a huge component of the gospel, but that doesn't set aside God's call on my life for obedience. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Don't call me that if you're not willing to follow me. So we see this idea of easy believism, which is a modern form of the ancient heresy of antinomianism, which means against the law or against any kind of moral call at all for God's people. And we know that's not true. Paul said to the Corinthians, if you don't deal with sin in the body, it's going to spread like yeast through a lump of dough. It doesn't get better. It just spreads. And so what has happened in the last 50 years anyway in American evangelicalism is you have a third category. You have the, the saved, those who are truly trusting in Jesus Christ. You have the lost, those who are in need of redemption. And then you've got a third category that's been carved out, the carnal Christian. Which sounds really convenient for convenient-minded people. But there's no argument for it in Scripture at all. These carnal Christians are called to become more spiritual, more obedient, but they don't have to really profess that Jesus Christ is their Lord and calls the shots in their life. Recently, I remember reading in R.C. Sproul's introduction of one of his books. He shared about a pastor who spoke to a young man in his congregation who was using drugs and living in an illicit relationship with his girlfriend. And the pastor tried to counsel the young man about his lifestyle. And the young man said, without skipping a beat, it's okay, pastor, don't get all worked up about that. I'm a carnal Christian. And he said lovingly to this young man, you, you have no biblical hope that you're saved at all. The grace of God rightly understood doesn't lead to that kind of thinking. So God's grace has triumphed in our life through Jesus Christ. Does it lead to sinful behavior? Or does it lead us to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? You can understand why Paul would ask this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We can understand why he would bring that up because it just seems so natural, doesn't it? It seems so logical. James Boyce comments on this. This is a reasonable concern. If works are not the basis for salvation, in other words, if you and I cannot earn anything or contribute anything to our salvation, which is absolutely what the Bible teaches, Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. It is logical for some to think, why do we worry about works at all? Shouldn't we just go on sinning? This question is really a test of whether or not you understand the gospel. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to follow him, to obey him. Most religious teaching tells you that 
to get to heaven, you need to stop sinning and do good things. And that you will be saved if you do this well enough and long enough, if that is what you were being taught, you need to understand that this, uh, you never even think of that question of personal righteousness, works of righteousness. But we know from reading the Bible that it's for by grace you've been saved through faith and that we've been saved for the purpose of good works, that God might be glorified in him. So it is logical, it's also natural. Sin, sin's fun for a season. Boy, but does it have a bite on the back end. There's a law that comes with the pursuit of sin. You reap what you sow. There's a payday someday. I thought of Hebrews 11, where it, which is the chapter of faith in the New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews mentions Moses, and he says this of Moses in verse 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was a good worldly standing. Life in the palace is nice. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Oh, it's fun for a while. I think one of the devil's greatest tricks is to get you to think that the things of God are boring and irrelevant and useless when in fact they're life to you. Our flesh, our sin nature inclines to, to sin naturally. Uh, Boyce mentions one other, not only is it logical, not only is it natural, but he says uh, th- that it's pious in the sense that often this only occurs in religious settings among those who are concerned with being righteous. <laughs> so Paul had this conversation all the time with the Jews. Surely you must add something. Surely if you preach this free grace, people are going to think that they can live however they want. And that's what Paul is dealing with right here. That's why the gospel in large measure was a stumbling block to the Jews. God's purpose in salvation is to save us from our sin, to save us from sin's guilt, to deliver us from guilt, and to deliver us and to empower us that we might overcome sin now sanctification in the gospel as that you and I are saying as John Newton did I'm not what I once was but I'm not I haven't arrived either by the grace of God I am what I am so it isn't it risky maybe but that's what we preach it's risky for those who are deceived who don't fully take in the demands that Christ has given in the gospel, which is come to me and follow me. Come to me, believe on me. Receive what I've done for you on the cross and live for me. Uh, Secondly, um, those who are dead don't sin. That's the point of verse two. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Dead people don't sin. That's the answer. He says, by no means. The Greek means, let it not be. And it expresses just a strong negative. It's inconceivable for it to be, is the idea. God forbid. I was helped by the life application study notes, which said the, the availability of God's mercy must not become an excuse for careless living and moral lackness. 
laxness. The idea that someone would claim to believe the gospel while planning to continue in sin is preposterous in the mind of the Apostle Paul. The point of the gospel was not to find an excuse for sin, but to give freedom from sin. And by the way, when you think about how you're going to live your life and who you're going to live for, would you, would you remember the cross for just a moment? Would you, would you remember the cross on the day that Jesus died? And really, his dying prayer was that we would sin no more. And we take the grace of God that we've received through him and we look up at him and take another spear by willful disobedience and thrust it into his side and say, in essence, I want all your grace, but I'm going to do it my way. And Paul says, God forbid. By no means. Sin is a a power It's a force, it entered the world. When did sin enter the world? In the garden with Adam, which we turn the page back to chapter five, and he's been making this point. Sin entered the world through Adam and shows itself all over the world. It reigns is the word he uses. Sin reigned from Adam. And so those outside of Christ are slaves to sin, but believers have been set free from the sin that enslaved them and are now enslaved to righteousness, which is the point of chapter 6. Jesus said in John 8, a chapter where he, he, he makes many declarations about himself, and he says, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This is John 8, 34 through 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does, does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Oh, the wonders of a salvation. We must not let sin reign over us. We have died to sin. You know, when you read the Bible and you see those who are committed to the Lord, not outwardly, but have a faith relationship with him. We go, to, we go to characters like Joseph in Genesis. And under the white hot temptation of sexual sin, he says in the face of it, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not, well, God will forgive me. I'll just go headlong into whatever I want to do. We'll ask questions and we'll think about it later. No, not Joseph. He he said, how how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm owned by the one who created me and I will serve him. I, I think of Psalm 119 verse 104, through your precepts, so the psalmist is saying, through your word, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Maybe you're dealing with the fun of sin right now. You love what you're doing. It's fun. But you know it's not right. I'm not talking about preferences. I'm not talking about uh, matters of, of conscience that are disputable. I'm talking about things you know are not right before God. 
and you're presuming on his grace. You and I should develop a healthy revulsion towards our sin. He said, I hate every false way. Listen to 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes practice of sinning. There you have it. (laughs) That's not to say believers don't sin because John would say earlier in the letter, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here he's talking about a pattern, an ongoing deliberate pattern of sin that rejects God's ways and you live however you want. And then John says, for God's seed abides in him, the one who is born of him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. You're no longer your own. You're a child of God. And listen to Paul in Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ. With Christ in God. So Romans 6 is about the believer's growth and sanctification. So follow me here. In these two verses, something triggers in his mind that brings him to baptism. Baptism by water, the burial and raising of the believer. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He absolutely rejects that antinomian thought, and, and which leads us to the third point. Don't you know the meaning of your baptism? That seems a bit awkward. It's like, wow, that came out of the field. Why, why are we now talking about baptism? Well, this talk about being in Christ and the believer's battle with sin triggered baptism in Paul's mind, and he says, basically, don't you, don't you know the meaning of your baptism? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him. Picture when, when we see that wonderful ordinance practice in this church and we see uh, a new believer profess their faith in Jesus Christ and they go under the water and They're buried with him, and then they come up again. We don't hold them down there. We don't keep them buried. We bring them up again. That is the picture of the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord, and we profess him as our only Savior. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to us to bring to our mind what happened to us when we got saved. So do you understand the meaning of your baptism? Well, let me just at this point say that Christians from the beginning were baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ. It was universal in the first century church. If you were a believer, you were baptized in in obedience to Christ. So all Christians were baptized, and so Paul is assuming, in Paul's mind, there doesn't exist someone who's a Christian who's not been baptized. It was universal in nature. The thought of a believer, again, not being baptized would have been unheard of. 
So why did Jesus command us to be baptized? Well, maybe because it was his prerogative to do so. He's the Lord after all, right? He's in charge. You're gonna be a follower of me. I want you to go at the beginning of your walk with me and I want you to be baptized. I want that to be the public profession of your faith that you were buried with me and you rose with me to walk in newness of life and you're a new creature by my grace. And so when we look at baptism in the New Testament, the word baptizo means to immerse. So let's talk a little bit about mode of baptism. Uh, the reason we don't have a baptismal font, which is a pool of water where we can sprinkle it on people over against a baptismal pool is because the mode presented in the scripture, even with scholars who are in traditions that sprinkle, admit that yes, the New Testament picture is clearly an immersion, not sprinkling, not a, a pouring. And I would mention several verses, maybe, uh, for you to look at later, but let me just read them. Matthew 3, 6. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were in the river. In that same chapter, Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So this is the scene where John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus goes out and is baptized as a pattern for us to follow. Jesus went up from the water. In John 3.23, this references John the Baptist also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. Uh, you don't need a lot of water if you're sprinkling people, right? But, you know, as we follow this from the Gospels into the book of Acts, we go to Peter's Pentecostal sermon. And Peter preaches simple, biblical, Christ-centered. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old covenant promises. What happened on the cross here in Jerusalem was for... God's redemption to come and to flow. And so after Peter was done preaching, they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And I'm praying that in this gathering today, that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be a cutting of your heart, a pricking of your heart. When they heard Peter preach, they were cut to the heart and they, and, and, and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Be baptized in obedience to Christ. Also in the book of Acts is that wonderful story of the Ethiopian eunuch as he's making his way and encounters Philip on the road and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And Philip is dispatched and he's there and he witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch. And after explaining to this eunuch Isaiah 53 and 
which is a wonderful prophecy of the coming of Christ. It says, he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Peter and the eunuch and he baptized him. Immersion. The word means immersion. The implication speaks to an immersion. And the reason we are Baptists and hold to this is because we're not, we don't have the right to change what Scripture clearly has revealed. And by the way, I was thinking of the eunuch. He was out in the middle of nowhere. You think he had a pouch of water in his chariot? It could have sprinkled right there in the chariot. He heard this wonderful teaching from Isaiah 53, and he said to Philip, I want to be baptized. What's keeping me from being baptized? Some of the sweetest moments I know as a pastor is when children, youth, adults come up to me and say, Pastor, I want to be baptized. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I want to follow him as it should be. And that's what it is. It's a believer's baptism. The, the, the practice in the New Testament, you become a believer by God's grace through repentance and faith in Christ alone, and you're baptized. There's not a single instant of, instant, uh, of infant baptism. That's nowhere in the, in the New Testament. Or sprinkling. It's a believer's baptism. And it is a public act of obedience which gives witness. And sometimes um, when the claims of the gospel come on a person and they hear the gospel for really to understand it for the first time, and uh, we live in a heavily Roman Catholic uh, community. When I first became a pastor uh, in New Orleans, that's a... uh, I pastored a church that was 95% Roman Catholic in the neighborhood where our church was. So I've been around Catholic people and Catholic doctrine and had Catholic conversations for um, all my ministry. And I have many wonderful Catholic friends. So this isn't, you know, a personal thing. This is a doctrinal matter. And I've noticed through the years that those coming out of a Catholic background often come in in their newness in Christ and the, the, their first thoughts are, I'm, I'm so far behind. You people know the Bible better than, we do, than I do. I, I feel so far. No, you're right where God has you. Come on in and let's grow together. But what I've noticed too through the years is the pressure that baptism comes to bear on those relationships. It's one thing to go check something out maybe to attend because of a Bible emphasis. It's quite another to say, I'm gonna be baptized. And I've seen many face persecution over that. You mean you're gonna get in that water and profess that Jesus in that way in that church? And I'm grateful for many have given this testimony I must. He's got a call in my life. That's what I believe. And that's what I want you to come to hear and see through me. It's a public act of obedience which gives witness. 
I would also mention it's a picture which portrays our death and the death of Christ. We've, we died in him and we've been raised in him to walk in newness of life. We're, we're new creatures in him. The Satan, Satan has a, is, is an accuser of the brethren. He brings condemnation in our life. But when we think I've been buried with him and I've been raised with Christ, I have no condemnation that is against me. Christ is my Lord. Jim Cimbala, who I've appreciated uh, through the years, said, Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He loves to remind us of how we messed up 20 years ago, 20 days ago, 20 minutes ago. He's always condemning, but the blood of Jesus Christ has given us victory over all the guilt of sin. Praise his name. A picture which portrays our rising from death with Christ is what I would mention next. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A believer is a changed person. So how do I, how does that become a reality for me? It begins with a saving relationship with Christ. You need Jesus Christ. But I think it comes experientially in this way. And I think of a couple of verses that I want to hold up. I think I put them in the notes for you to look at later. But Paul speaks of it this way. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Colossians 2. So you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, verses 6 and 7. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the big discussion now is, okay, so it's baptism that saves, right, Pastor? That's what you're saying now? It's baptism that saves. No, that's not what I'm saying. It triggers this in Paul's mind because it goes to the front end of what it means to be a Christian, that if you are a believer, you are to be baptized but it's not the means by which we're saved. If I were to now say this morning, you need to be baptized in order to be saved, I would undercut everything I've taught you from Romans 1, 1 through 5. That this is the picture of our profession of faith. And if baptism saved, think of the, think of the in injustice of this, I guess, or the, uh, why it's so far off from what we need to follow. If I'm focusing, no, you need to be baptized to be saved, I'm taking the attention off of the most important thing, and that is that God's Son came from heaven to earth and died on a cross to pay for our sins. If I'm just emphasizing your need for baptism, it's an act of obedience 
that does not save, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you think it would bring a question to mind if you think you're a believer and you refuse to be baptized and you would neglect so straightforward a command from Christ that you would think you would be right with him? Why would you think that you would be right with him if you're a professing believer and refuse to be baptized as he's commanded? That all the world might know that you're a follower of him. Well, you know, my hair might get messed up. I saw someone get baptized up there and their hair came out kind of funny. You know, someone might see my toes. You know, if those are your thoughts, you got a lot to work through. Because that's not important at all. And by the way, nobody sees your toes. And if your hair looks like seaweed when you come up, we'll rake it over. But you will know you have proven what's excellent under the Lord. I'm following the Lord in obedience. And if you're not willing to follow him there, in a room where there are several hundred rooting for you, what's the likelihood you'll ever stand for him out there where he's despised? So this idea of baptism being the symbol, the picture of the reality of salvation comes to mind because we take the Bible seriously and we come to verse three and four and it says, speaks of of, of baptism, therefore with him by baptism into death. We think, well, that's the means. Again, I think the weight of scripture says, look, just turn the page to chapter five, verse one. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a symbol. And John Piper offers the best explanation of this, and I hope you'll savor it with me. And he takes baptism to the Christian, and he puts it um, in the context of marriage, in the ring of marriage. He says, there, there's, here's the analogy I would suggest to show that this language in Romans 6 can be the language of symbol, not instrument. All of us who have put on the ring of marriage have, by putting on this ring, forsaken all others to cleave only to our wives, husbands. Therefore, by this ring, I'm united to my wife alone and dead to all others. Now, you could press the language, Piper says. You could say, ah, It was the actual putting on the ring that caused your forsaking all others and your cleaving to your wife or your husband. You said it explicitly, by this ring, I'm united to my wife alone. What could be plainer? The ring does it all. But that is not what I mean. I would mean by these words, I would mean that putting on the ring is a sign of my forsaking all others and cleaving only to her. The decisive leaving and cleaving is in the promise, the covenant, the vows. In old English, I plight thee my troth. (laughs) I promise you my faithfulness. Then comes the ring, the symbol that you carry with you as long as you draw breath. And by God's grace, you will hold true. 
In that analogy, the vows stand for faith in Christ and the ring stands for baptism. And the point is that we often talk this way. We often speak of the symbol as though it brings about what it only signifies. And so it is with baptism. May this place be a place of great rejoicing when people profess faith in Christ as they're buried with him and raised with him to walk in newness of life. Are you a believer in him? Maybe this morning you've come to believe in the course of this sermon. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be baptized. Maybe you've been a believer for some time and haven't been well taught on this and haven't been challenged to this level. And this morning the challenge is given in clear terms. If you're truly a believer, you need to follow him in baptism and do it quickly. And for all of us to surrender to him. You know, Paul says that in baptism, there's a picture of walking in newness of life. Walking in newness of life. Everyone who encountered Jesus in a saving way was changed. Just reviewing the gospels, their life was changed. Maybe things have stacked up in your life and you don't feel like you have newness of life. That's one of the benefits of coming together as a church family, we begin again, don't we? Where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. We begin again. Say, Lord, I, I want to walk in the newness of life that is my position in Jesus Christ. I want to put off my sin and put on you. And I do so this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer as we prepare to sing our closing song of commitment to this, a time to respond in faith. It's a time to respond in faith. And this morning, perhaps the Lord has put on your heart an act of obedience, a need to respond. You know, the, the whole issue of the gospel, believe in Christ as a command that you would be saved, that you would be forgiven, that you would be brought into God's forever family. And that all of us need to reckon with issues of obedience. Father, we pray in these closing moments that our hearts would be completely yielded to you and may you be glorified in this gathering in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.